Lucky Land slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Math Office Podcast brought to you by Forget-Me-Not Productions. My name is Clary Sadler, a former actor, musician, teacher, turned inclusive arts practitioner. Each podcast you'll hear empowering interviews by, about, or for marginalised groups. Please give it up for David Fgrave, come on! David is a comedian, writer, blogger, actor, musician, and songwriter hailing from Hertfordshire. He also describes himself as the back-end of comedy duo Doggett and Fgrave. Dog and Nefgrave have done runs in London's West End and Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, myself, as well as being comics, we do a variety of things, don't we? We do. Uh, we're actors, we run this comedy club, we produce shows. So we're kind of used to multitasking. So as a result, we find it a bit frustrating when we see other people and they don't seem to be able to do things kind of correctly, that sort of thing, isn't yeah. that right? That's right. So what we thought we'd do now is we'd share with you a few things that we've discovered over the last few months. Uh, basically, it's of people not doing things correctly. That's yeah. right, isn't it? And we've called this section, and I quote, if I was going to do it, I wouldn't do it like this. For example, if I wanted to tell you that ball games were prohibited in the square, I wouldn't make that statement on a sign that was square. No. I feel that kind of confuses the message somewhat, doesn't it? Does this mean, David, yeah, yeah. if I wanted to bounce my ball, yeah. I, I could do it there, yeah. but I couldn't do it in there? No, you couldn't do it in there. It's prohibited in the square, that's what it says, really. Right, right. <laughs> Doggett and Fgrave run Mostly Comedy, a successful comedy club based in Hitchin. The club has expanded in 12 years, outgrowing five venues across Hitchin, before reaching its current home of Hitchin Town Hall in Mostly comedy in the past include Harry Hill, Phil Jupitus, Eureka Katani, Rory Bremner, Catherine Ryan, Jack D, Paul Daniels, Kate Robbins, Bobby Davro, Norman Lovett, Neil Innes, and many more. Doggett and Fgrave also host the More Than Mostly Comedy podcast in which they interview many of the acts that played their club. As a comedy duo, they did 11 seasons with the comedy project The Soho Theatre and have taken various stand-up shows to various fringe festivals throughout the UK. David's solo actor-musician credits include playing Paul McCartney in the number one tour of the Roy Orbison story and playing Buddy Holly in the UK island tour of Buddy Holly and the Pretty Tears. Let's hear ladies, come on. He also 
also played Richard in the West End production of Green Boats and Petticoats. And as a comedian, David took his first solo show and F-Wave to the 2015 Brighton and Camden Fringe Festivals. His second show, mostly David F-Wave, to Edinburgh, Brighton, London and Leicester Fringe Festivals in 2016. His third, now who's a comedian, to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2017. And his fourth, David F. Gray, my part in his downfall, to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2018. He's also kept the daily blog for five years. Hey, then, second wife, and never rush into a room, she just in. There it is. Pyro, Pyro. I don't care that that joke is about a woman who died 483 years ago. In my mind, that's still cutting edge. Poor choice of wording there. Most recently, David was featured amongst Daily Telegraph's 20 Funniest One-Liners of the 2017 Edinburgh Fringe and Comedy Central's 30 Funniest Jokes of the Year, plus iNewspaper's 50 Best Jokes, The Scotsman's 40 Best Jokes, and the Edinburgh Evening News's 40 Funniest One-Liners of 2018's Edinburgh Fringe Lists. My dad told me recently uh, that he'd found a suspicious lump. Okay, it's a strange thing to say, I can't keep on the go with it, anyway. Now, it turns out it was just a hernia, so it's nothing to worry about. But when I asked him when he first noticed it, okay, when he first spotted it, he said he first spotted it when he was closing the garage door of our house in Wellington Road in Stevenage, a house we moved out of in 1983. <laughs> 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 Suddenly, my broken brain didn't seem so bad. He'd had this hernia for 30 years. This was a Thatcherite hernia. <laughs> it was there at the fall of the Berlin Wall. Not, not literally, didn't play a part, quite like benign hernias. Uh, the release of Nelson Mandela. This hernia went through eight Olympics, eight World Cups, and five Prime Ministers. There are people in this country younger than my dad's hernia that have the right to vote. <laughs> David, welcome to the show. Um, thanks for coming on. So the question we usually start, uh, well, ask everybody that comes on is, how would you describe yourself, I suppose, professionally, what you do in a nutshell? I don't, it's one of the hardest things. I don't know if you feel like this, but I, I it's the imposter syndrome thing. And also, m- mine's, like yours, a bit of a list. So, you know, I'm, I'm an actor and I'm a musician and I'm a comedian. Um, but you think if anyone ever asks you what you do, you say one and that's not very believable. Then you add another one and they're like, what? And it just, so yeah, I still don't really know how to define myself. Uh, a performer. But even that sounds a bit over the top. I don't know. But yeah, actor, musician, comedian, writer, poor man, very poor man. No money whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I get asked that and I sort of tend to say, I guess what I do more so now is uh, with a company. So I will say inclusive arts practitioner. And then you're met with a blank gaze of what's yeah, yeah. that then? <laughs> but that sounds more like a thing. That's quite, I, you know, that's better. That's like, whoa, okay. I, I couldn't compete with that. Whereas I'm like, I just sound like I'm doing things that people do for, you know, I'm making it up. Just feel like a liar. You'd think this many years in, like nearly 20 years in to being like professional, I wouldn't feel like a liar, but I still do. Don't know why. <laughs> Well, I've been trying to get to you Well, I've been trying to get to you We well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I don't know what I'm gonna do You don't let me get to you Well, you've been playing me on a line Well, you've been saying you could be mine Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I'm driven to give this place to me You've been trying to get to me Theatre School or HTS many moons ago now. We're very old. Very, very old. I don't know how that happened. I know. Exactly. (laughs) It just feels like, if I think about it, I can picture myself in that flat on Bancroft Road, you know, listening to The Kinks or something like that. Doesn't feel like 20 years ago plus. Not at all. No. But don't you find, I think like when we were kids, when we were very small, like it's growing up in, you know, the 80s and the 90s. You'd, you'd like the, the things like the 60s and the 50s and the 40s seem like a lifetime ago, you know, as in, and also it's part of the black and white era. You look at it and go, oh, that was 20 years ago. But now we're at the point where like 20 years ago was like when Oasis played Nebworth and when all this sort of, you're like, <laughs> I know. what's that? You know, that's almost, almost at the point of new music for me in my mind, like current, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's 20 years ago. So Yeah, so the sort of thing my dad would have called rap you know, even though it was a band like the Manic Street Preachers that, you know, <laughs> furthest thing away from rap that you could imagine, yeah, yeah, but he would still call it rap yeah, yeah, crap. Some of their songs. I, don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> Jazzy Jeff comes on and does a bit. Yeah. I know what you mean. It's sort of, <laughs> you know, I think about my mum talks about growing up in the 60s and the kind of music she liked listening to. And when I was a kid, that felt ancient. Whereas I just bought the... 25th anniversary I think it was of no it was 20th anniversary of um, the Manic Street Preachers album This Is My Truth Tell Me Yours 20 years really <laughs> how did that happen well it's like the Beatles thing it's Sgt Pepper 20 years ago today and you go, you go how can that be yeah it's just, it's just crazy I don't really understand it also because I, I think well, maybe I'm wrong maybe we all grow up at the same time but we all kind of look the same at this point <laughs> So you can sort of go, well, no, we're not, we're not old yet. And then I'm sure it's to come very soon, you know. Yeah, and you know, you get that thing where you see people you went to primary school with and you recognise them. You haven't seen them, you know, yeah, since yeah. 1989. You yeah, recognise yeah. them. They look the same. Their faces are the same. Yeah, yet exactly. They are grey, you know, grey hair or balding. Yeah. And they're yeah. in their 40s. Like, how does that happen? I, I really remember very clearly like an EastEnders and it was, oh, what's his name? Um, oh, for God's sake, Frank Butcher's son. Uh, yeah. Ricky. Anyway, like a, Ricky, yeah. And I remember there was a storyline where he was 18 and me, like being young, was like, oh, he's old. He, and I was like, I'm like, yeah, like, I, can't, I don't even want to work out over twice. I don't know. I'm older than that, let's say. John Lennon died when he's 40. I need to speed up and sort my life out, really. Because yeah. I want to get shot next year. That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. that's that. That's the thing. You need to... Yeah. um. 
you know, do something. Yeah. What did he do that was controversial? Say you're better than Jesus or something like uh, that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I might get in the local paper, yeah, maybe. The Comet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Front of the Comet for a fortnight. That'd be good. So I'm thinking back to Hertfordshire Theatre School, it always struck me as a little bit odd because we studied acting and musical theatre, a genre that I think we both quite passionately disliked. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I can still, occasionally, I put Radio 2 on on a Sunday and Elaine Page is on and that cringe feeling just comes over me, you know? She, her, oh, her voice, just her speaking voice. Her speaking I'm voice. I'm sure she smokes about 80 a day. And it's just, yeah. Oh, and I, the, anno- no, the annoying I, giggle. I, I, <laughs> I don't Yeah, it's a funny thing. It's like, because um, my comedy partner, Glyn Doggett, he's very into musical theatre. And I've tried over the years to steer him towards real music. Um, but I still, I think we felt this at the time, you feel like the minority. Because we were there in a musical theatre course. And yet we were into like what we see as real music. Yet... Yeah. In Glynn's world, you know, he'll listen to musicals more than he'll listen to what I'd like to say is normal stuff. So yeah, you just you like you want to go. This isn't this isn't what every you know, people are more into popular culture music. They're not into musicals. They go to musicals okay because it's the thing everyone goes to see in the theatre in London. But you, listening to musicals, I just don't get that. You know, yeah, maybe like the old ones, like the Gershwin's ones, beautiful, you know, that sort of thing. But Stephen Sondheim, yes, as well. But you will never get me in the audience for Wicked. I just can't. No. Can't no, please no. I just, oh no, um, but I know I've, I know someone who was in it, and I'm, I'm sure it's a very good show. And I, I can appreciate when you're doing it. I don't mind doing musical theatre. He says, says sort of, but listening to it, no, not for me. Yeah, it's not. I can't see that I would ever put on a musical theatre CD, in, unless it was like the Carol King musical. But I yeah, would sooner exactly. put on the Tapestry album and listen to actual yeah. Carol King. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I suppose my question is, you know, thinking back to then, how did that come about for you? You know, that college, that course, that time? There's sort of a variety of things, really. I mean, at that time, uh, the band that I was in was the main thing. Sometimes it seems like things are going bad Well, I don't feel like I'm good to be around, but, well, you look at me, and I want to smile. And there are times when I feel so conscious about myself that, well, I can't move and I can't talk to no one else, but, well, you And I want to smile Well, I felt this for a while You make the bad times all Say 
I'd always been interested in acting. I'd always been interested in all those sort of things. But yeah, the band was the thing that I was going to do. Music was the thing that I was going to do. And um, I very nearly took a year out um, to sort of concentrate on the band. Um, and I'd auditioned because I because I was from around the same area, Hertfordshire, as Hertfordshire Theatre School. I'd auditioned as a sort of backup, really, you know, in case I don't know whatever I decided to do. If I decided not to do the band thing, whatever, I didn't really audition much wider. Um, and then, as these things often seem to be, I think it was in the bath, and I thought I was just thinking, hang on a minute, is this a good is this a good idea? So I was going to be a junior manager of Argos, which uh, wasn't really me, you know. And I thought, do I do that or do I? I've got into this drama school. It's close to where I live. I could carry on the band. I could train because I did still want to act. So I'm not just, you know, I'm not seeking out Argos to be the thing. So yeah, I chose to do that. And I mean, over time, to cut a long story short, after the drama school finished, I got a job and that was sort of an acting job and that was the end of the band. I don't regret going there for lots of reasons because I think uh, it was, I mean, it was a small school. There were some things that were really good about it. There were some things that weren't so good about it. And there was certainly that sense of, I guess, because like you, I wasn't into musical theatre. I was doing that day by day and that's fine, but it didn't really sit comfortably with me. And I, I remember a very key thing. One of the things that uh, the sort of latter day principal, because there were two principals, as you know, said about me was, because I played guitar like you and I was always using that at the school, was, well, you know, the thing, the thing about David is, you know, it would be, he, what he should have done, put the guitar down, you know, learn to be a musical theatre performer. That'd be the thing. And playing the guitar and being a musician was the thing that got me all the work that I got after. Actually got me in a West End show, in inverted commas musical, but not really. And that was because that was a skill that I had. Why would you, why would you mask the natural skills that you have? You know, you've got to use what you've got. And there's a thing, because I was listening to your ep- episode with um, Anne-Marie Lewis-Thomas, and she was saying the same thing about, you know, making a brand, you know, and I know that's a very sort of um, now comment of it, but it's true. Why would you disguise the talent? I say talent, but the thing you have that's your skill, you know, and if if he got me to put the guitar down and be a musical theatre, I would never have done it. I didn't want to do it. And also I would never have been as good as people who genuinely were good at that and interested in that. Whereas, you know, the guitar was the thing. So that was why I was there. Um, And it was good for acting. It was good. I met Glyn there as well, my writing partner. Um, I met you. The, I don't know why I did a musical theatre course. I don't know why I've got an acting musical theatre diploma. I don't. I don't really know that that's transferable as anything. But I, you know, I enjoyed it at the time. I didn't enjoy doing dance classes every day, pretty much, and every week. It's so I can't believe we did that. And you and I were both no. <laughs> kind of trying to avoid that for three years. Yeah. Plebs yeah. stood at the back, yeah, exactly. getting told off for not having tap shoes. <laughs> I, yeah, I spent a whole year not having tap shoes. The irony being, I really wanted to learn to tap dance. That was one of the few things I was genuinely interested in. But our teacher, uh, the one that we had an argument about, um, a, a bar of seven. Do you remember that? She said a bar of seven was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like, no, no, no. That, yeah. That's eight. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So I, as soon as I realized that, I thought, I'm not going to bother with the tap shoes. I'll just sort of, yeah, <laughs> just stand here for a year, basically, in trainers. I don't know if I answered your question. I just, yeah, I do no, ramble. definitely. And I think... The thing for me is at the time I was probably a better actor. I loved singing. I, you know, I wrote songs and played the guitar. I was a better actor than I was singer at the time. Probably still now. I don't know. And there was just nothing else. You couldn't really do an acting course that also enabled you to write, you know, rock or pop music. <laughs> Such a thing didn't exist. I mean, maybe Lipper, but I didn't have the money <laughs> to try and get there. So it was. 
almost like the next best option. You kind of learn to sing, and luckily doing it, we got to meet Anne-Marie Lewis-Thomas, who, you know, did definitely teach me to sing and to find my voice. I was sort of singing in some strange head voice, even the low songs, I was, you know. So for that, I'm glad I don't regret the decision. Yeah, yeah, me neither, exactly. And the weird thing is now, like with the sort of thing we do, because we're both musicians and we act, you know, now there are courses. Now you can do actor muso courses, all those things that weren't really there even when we were at college. Um, But then at the same time, I don't know about that. I just... I, I remember having a conversation with another guy who's an actor and a musician, and he said, well, it kind of teaches you to be um, a not really good version of either thing. You know, in trying to teach it as specifically a skill, you're sort of going, oh, well, learn to play the guitar a bit or whatever, learn to act a bit. And I think it's, well, I mean, particularly for me, because a lot of the shows I did like that were sort of rock and roll based things. They were things I already had an interest in. That was stuff I already knew. That was part of me, you know. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that as a course, but then I don't know if you if you want to do that thing, and you don't have the experience. That probably is the best thing. But it wasn't there when we were when we were young. <laughs> so it seems like comedy is your main focus now. Certainly before the pandemic. Yeah, and I <laughs> yeah now it's just misery, just pure misery. <laughs> I think I still think of you primarily as a musician. I don't know if that's more to do with how I see myself, even though, you know, my days of picking up a guitar or sitting at the at the keyboard and singing are quite f- few and far between. But that's how I think of myself, you know, at the core. <laughs> how do you view yourself? Would you say it's more musician, actor, comedian, or is there a level of crossover with all three for you? It's called Quick Time and it's a newie. Uh, by the way, um, thank you very much for seeing me. Uh, I'm playing tomorrow night at the Market Theatre in Hitchin, the only theatre of its kind in Hitchin, yes, on Sun Street. If you like the set, come along and see it. If you didn't like the set, go to the fair, it's great. There's something on my mind, it's playing all the time. I should be doing something positive today Well I'm feeling bored Not looking forward to Another day of wishing countless hours away You called me and you said you're doing fine Seems you got over me in quick time stole me you said that you were my friend well i tell you that had you and you think that you're much better since we've not been together but each time you open a new door well i tell you i've been there before The highlight of my day And I've tried denying But you're conniving Is that I mustn't trust a single thing you say I call you when I said I'm doing fine Seems I got over you 
there definitely is a crossover. And one thing I quite like is that the way my sort of life has gone, there'll be pockets of people that I work with and are my friends. And some of them will definitely see me as a musician because that's what they know me for. And some would see me as a comedian or whatever, wouldn't know that I really played and or the acting thing. So I quite like that because I'm someone who gets um, bored quite easily, uh, likes to do different things always, likes to keep trying different things. So that's, yeah, that's quite handy. But I, huh, again, it's this imp- an imposter syndrome thing. Um, I used to, and like when I when we met, I was definitely, I was a musician, I was a songwriter. That was my thing. That was, I was interested in acting, I was interested in comedy, all those things. But it was sort of a placeholder while I did the thing that I really did. And then when I left drama school, and as I say, I got this, um, the first job I got was an acting muso job. Um, and it was, this is when they used to have PCR. Do you remember that? The, like photocopied sheet with like with jobs in it. The idea you'd even have that now is ridiculous because they'd all be gone by the time you get it. But it had, yeah, there was an advert and it said, uh, excellently guitarist needed for this show. And, oh no, excellent bass player is what it was. And I looked at it and I thought, well, no, I'm not. But um, I'll sod it. I'll write them a letter. And I wrote them a letter and I got the audition. In fact, the first audition I did was for the Buddy show I ended up doing because I played Buddy Holly for quite a while. I think this was my second audition. And while I was doing it and playing the bass and stuff, the guy, Keith Strachan, who's the MD, said, oh, I see you play guitar and stuff as well. Do you play, you know, do you think you'd be all right at guitar? I said, well, yeah, no, I can. I showed him a bit of that. And then it ended up the lead guitarist had dropped out last minute. So that was the job I got. And again, I'd ne- although I've been in a band for years, it's different, isn't it, when it's your own stuff? Because you don't re- you don't think, and now I'm lead guitarist, you're just playing the bit that you play then, you know. So the idea of going into a situation where I was the lead guitarist was a bit ridiculous. But that's, I tell you, that's one good thing that's come out of the Atom Museo stuff I've done, is if you do a job and that job says you're the pianist or you're the guitarist, for that period of time, you really work on that thing and you are that thing for a while. So that's probably helped me get a, be, be a better musician, but probably a worse songwriter, because that's the thing. I got so, I mean, the first day of the rehearsals for that, they plonked like a score in front of us, 60 songs in the show. It was opening the following Monday. It's like, we're just going to go through these now. We're just going to do them. And it's like, okay, so we're straight in here. And again, it was like, I mean, thankfully, there was a lot of Buddy Holly stuff. There's a lot of stuff I knew. Uh, one of the other band members was having a harder time, the other new cast member. And it's terrible, but that actually helped me hide a bit and you know it's just like, oh, he's worse than me at this point you know so that helped but um yeah but then what happened was i did a lot of that sort of work and suddenly i was playing other people's songs i wasn't playing my own anymore and that combined with the point that i sort of missed was taking that job then taking the next job that i got meant i wasn't around for the band the band that was always my thing that i was going to do that or nothing else you know uh they couldn't wait for me anymore and you go well i've gone to drama school I've got a job. I suppose I should take it. And and then the next job was playing Paul McCartney, who's my hero. So you go, do do I? How can I? How can I turn that one down? But yeah, it led to a period of about six or seven, maybe eight years of really not being happy because I was doing all these work, these jobs, but I wasn't writing anymore. I wasn't the musician at heart that I used to be. I lost confidence because I think when you're in a band, you can hide. I most I wrote most of the songs, but I could hide within the image of the band. So I could say quite personal stuff, no one would notice. Suddenly I was on my own. So yeah, I spent a period of time going, well, I don't really know what I am anymore. I regret giving up the band. And then the comedy thing sort of happened by accident. And that was like my second wind, I suppose. I thought, well, no, I can do this. Because it's very similar. I mean, there's a there's a definite link between 
musicians, comedians, the sort of nature of rhythm in a joke, the nature of the sort of people who are comedians. It sort of followed and suddenly I had this sort of second hurrah. I thought, okay, yeah, no, I can do this. But now I'm more a comedian, but then I'm also more a comedy promoter because I run a club and you get stuck in that and not really a songwriter. But there is a part of me that goes, oh, I should have stuck with that. You know, that was... I understand now that to sort of make an impact in something, whatever it is, you have to have something sort of a bit special or a little bit, in, not special, a bit more individual. And I think the me that was in a band that was writing songs was definitely an individual, even if it was like con- concealed by this band thing. And we would do, you know, we, I, I mean, you were there at the time, but we would, we were sort of heading somewhere. It was happening. You know, we got, um, weirdly, we were like supporting bands that we listened to when we were growing up. There's Boy Cooper Shaker and, um, the supernaturals and there was a sense of it happening and through the supernaturals we got like um uh, it was their their label which was blur's label we're going to come and see us and then that gig didn't happen because i got this other job and so yeah for a long time i was like oh god i'm the reason for my own sort of giving this up you know this it's all my own fault and then as i say um the comedy thing um it's the same sort of thing because I, i'm in a double act there was something special about the double act that went okay we're a thing that no one else is this could lead to something but, well, that's a long story, but as an individual comedian, I don't know, I am a comedian, that is my drive, but part of me goes, oh, you know, the individual, the more interesting individual is probably that songwriter 20 years ago. Go, ah, why didn't I do that? And then you could say, we'll do it now. But as you know, not so easy when you've dropped it for that much time. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I picked up, picked up the guitar, actually not the guitar, sat at the piano tonight and just... I mean, I, I started something and, it, you know, I kind of got excited for the first time. But it was more, I had to actually say to my wife earlier today, because she's taking, taking our kids out, I'm actually going to sit in the office <laughs> after I interview David. I'm going to do some songwriting. Okay. Uh, you know, almost like, don't disrupt me. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. If I hadn't sat down and tried to do it, but I don't think the inspiration came easily. I mean, I actually looked at the books on my bookshelf for a title <laughs> that kind of inspired something in me and tried to write around that, which is not an approach I would have ever taken before. So, yeah, it is hard. When we, when we were younger, when we were younger, whatever we felt at the time, it was kind of easier. I don't know if that's... It's not even the arrogance of you because neither you or I were arrogant <laughs> and we were a little pocket in the drama school that was into real music and we were both songwriters and we sort of spurred each other on, I think. But yeah, I don't know. It came easier. I don't know if it's like I say, cause I had a band, I had a reason to write stuff. Then when I started doing all these shows where you're playing the songs of, you know, really fantastic songwriters and stuff, I started to overanalyze. I started to go, well, that's just, that's a simple A to D to, you know, so I, I was overthinking it. And the minute I overthought it, I just couldn't really do it anymore. And I know it's partly because just the, the space I was in at the time, I think. But yeah, I think the same as you maybe. Now, if I had to write something for something, like sometimes for comedy, I'll write a little sort of sting or something um, to be in a show. I can do that quite easily, you know. But that's a, that's a bit like the sort of crass, like writing songs for adverts thing. You know what I mean? It's not It's not the part of me that was inspired by, like you, I think I wrote from the heart. Definitely. I mean, I... I wrote a song about a year ago for a sort of schools project using using creativity and music, which is the core of what I do in my company now, really, using music as a motivator, I guess, for learning about things that you might not want to 
or might struggle to learn about, like maths. And I wrote a song called Fantastic Fractions. And I mean, it's like this little cheesy, you know, like you say a bit crass, but, you know, in that context, it's quite easy because that's a character. I'm writing as a character about something daft and I can do that. (laughs) And I've written four shows that I've been in and, you know, quite liked the outcome. But for that particular show, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily good songs, you know, but writing for myself, you know, I look through old songbooks, things I've forgotten even how to play. And I occasionally find myself going, wow, that's good. You know, I was 19. Really? I sound almost intelligent. And wow, yeah, that that's yeah. quite deep, you know, and you think, yeah, yeah. gosh, where did that go? <laughs> Maybe it's still in yeah. there. And you, like you said, it's a, a confidence thing. Maybe. I think so. And yeah, because we were doing that thing. We were, do, we were following a sort of, I don't know. A bit of a dream, really. And, and at this stage, I mean, both you and I, you know, we're, we're working in, in a field that is the thing that we started out as, the thing we loved, you know, it's linked to music, it's linked to performance and all those sort of things. But that the good thing about that three years at drama school was the sort of time around it to, I don't know, this sounds very wanky, but be a sort of an artistic soul. You know what I mean? Just be like, I'm doing this thing. I'm a slightly tortured student. I'm writing songs. I'm, you know, we'd, we've got this sort of, this uh, format that's set up, we're going to this course, we're doing these classes, oh, I hate that thing, I hate this thing, oh, we're do, doing the musical theatre thing, whatever. But it, it gives you some, I don't know, it just gives you a bit more drive, doesn't it? And, and a bit more confidence. And yeah, the, I think overthinking is <laughs> the the most, I don't say dangerous, but the, the most uh, of the thing that will stop you doing what you should do. I, I really think there's a um, a thing to be said for just doing it, you know, just getting on with it and doing it. Um and not being too much of a hard critic of yourself. But that's easier said than done. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I don't want to sound like some cynical 40-year-old. I mean, I am, don't get me wrong. Yeah, just don't want to sound <laughs> I am like 40, that, and I'm very yeah. cynical. But, um, mm. you know, I am living the dream. I've got my own business. And as you say, it's what we set out to do. So you kind of, you're still in that field. So many people drop out, you know. And, you know, I've got a family. I mean, I'm living the perfect sort of, idyllic family life I don't want to sound like I'm not happy for my lot um I think when you're younger and certainly you know at that drama school it would tend to be you and I that would stay there until seven eight nine o'clock at night sometimes we weren't practicing dance routines and singing musical (laughs) theater songs generally it was sat at the piano or you know in the music room playing the guitar or writing you know and I think you allow yourself the time and space to do that, particularly when you are training, because yeah. you know that's what you're there to do, to learn and to develop. And you almost yeah. feel guilty when you have responsibilities and a life that you know requires you to do A, B, and C. You just don't have the time to dedicate to it, and I think that's half the problem. Yeah, definitely. And if you if you had the time, if you would, do, yeah, if you had the freedom to do that, I'm sure. I'm sure both of us could get back into that mindset. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the reality. But we managed, I guess, to sort of draw, be somewhere between the reality while also doing the thing that was the dream. So yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, it's close enough. You know, it never goes away. So going back to, you know, the comedy club, you said you're a comedy club promoter. Obviously, you and Glyn, Dog and F. Grave, while you were doing live gigs, 
would do a routine. Yeah. You mentioned sometimes it involved maybe a musical sort of jingle or a comedy sketch that you've done. I know you did a song called Ukulele Girl, which is great, yeah, yeah, yeah. that that you perform sometimes. I think, I imagine the temptation of being a musically inclined comedian is possibly to make that the act, you know, invoking yeah. your inner Tim Minchin or, or yeah. probably for you, it'd be more likely to be Victoria Wood. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, did you purposely shy away from that? Did you not want to be a musical comedy act? Or is that just how it panned out? Um, as I say, I'd like to dedicate this song to my ex-girlfriend. Um, dedicate is quite a good word, actually, because she's dead. And her name's Kate. Um, it's called Ukulele Girl. Well, the day I met my baby, I was playing ukulele in the sunshine. Her name was Tallulah, and she traveled from Bermuda just to be mine. She loved me, and my Hawaiian melody. So Tallulah from Bermuda was my baby, my ukulele girl. Shall we give it up for the market theater favorite, Mr. Glyn Doggin? Here he is. <laughs> well, sometimes I think of maybe that by playing ukulele, I annoy her. And when she throws it in the river, I forgive her because I really do adore her. But she went too far, she took my miniature guitar. And I was penetrated, ain't violated by a ukulele. Oh, fucking hell. That's what you're doing, William. Cause month and week and daily I was playing ukulele in the sunshine A suicide note said she found it hard to cope, she put a gun to her head And she knew the good and left saw the berry in my baby And I'm playing ukulele in the sunshine Her name it was Tallulah and she traveled from Bermuda just to be mine Well my four strings sound as they put her in the ground While she's decomposing I compose a little requiem for my ukulele She's dead. A ukulele girl deceased. A ukulele girl. She's dead. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm quite um, hard on musical theatre acts. Oh, musical theatre, not that again. Uh, act, uh, what am I saying? Musical comedians. I, I think there are a lot of people who aren't really, say, songwriters. Again, it's the thing we're saying about actor muso courses. Um, who say they're a musical comedian and because they can play a few chords on a ukulele or something. Whereas there are some, I mean, you mentioned Victoria Wood. There's a guy, Jay Foreman. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's, he's a brilliant songwriter, really good songs, but really funny and really clever. So, and, and others don't really do that. I don't know. It just, yeah. I think I did probably shy away from it. I think some, you know, what it's like sometimes people will say to you, Oh, well, you know, why don't you use the music more? That's what you do. Or why don't you do whatever it is? But that never inspired me. I don't know. It never inspired me. Um, Whereas the stand-up thing, I mean, it kind of happened by accident, basically, because Glyn and I took a show to Edinburgh in 2008 called The Balloon Debate. Where the fuck did you find him? <laughs> Through a friend. Which friend? You've never met him. Really? Yeah, I've never met him. That's right. Gary, mm. tell me honestly. Yeah? Was it Memphis Pete? <laughs> Might have been. <laughs> yeah, it was Memphis Pete. Absolutely fucking fantastic. He's telling me booked a balloon flight. A flight in a fucking balloon. Of the man who sells porn from the boots of his Vauxhall Astra round the back of Matalan. We're going to die! <laughs> well, not necessarily. Really? Yeah, not everything he sells is dodgy. 
What about that smoke alarm I got off him? That works all right. Gary, it caught fire. <laughs> yeah, but it beeped a bit first. <laughs> Why do you fall for him every time? Well, look, I, I know he's let us down a bit in the past, but he's really starting to turn things around. Gary, he lives in his car. He's got a garage. Not anymore. Uh, we've been writing together for a little while. And after that, in fact, while we were there, um, Chris Hollis, who you remember, who's the drummer in my band, came up to replace one of the cast members in the show for the last week. And we were literally crossing um, a road when we were talking about, oh, we should do some sort of, you know, regular event because we were in Hitchin, we're based in Hitchin, as an excuse to write comedy, maybe like poetry, that sort of thing, just to set a thing up. So literally crossing that road, I can picture the, the road now, was when um, sort of the idea of what became mostly comedy, which is the comedy club I run, was formed. And so, yeah, it was great because suddenly we had um, this monthly deadline. It was in a room above a pub, a uh, monthly deadline to write material. And yeah, you know, I guess because Glyn isn't a musician, it never really occurred to me to do that. And I was always more into the sort of observation stuff, the ridiculousness of like the, the things, I don't know, the typos in life, the really silly things no one ever considers. But you look at and go, what the heck? Why would you? Like, I remember specifically I used to do a thing about there was um, <laughs> uh, in Amsterdam when I went there, there was like a, a cafe which had like food in the window that clearly had been there for a very long time, like, you know, <laughs> like cheese dogs and stuff that, I don't know, they were formed like 20 years ago. And and the name of it was Good Luck. And I, I just thought, like, yeah, good luck if you eat here because you could die. You know, you just think, why have you called it Good Luck? Why, you know, why, that's just, what are you saying? Um, and it's those sort of things that amuse me. Um, and because, specifically because, I think it's quite hard because we were a double act, but we were presenting stand-up and we were doing stand-up. And I think the only way you can do stand up as two people as if you have something to refer to just so happened there was a projector at the venue so we would use projection we both refer to and talk about that and and that became the basis of our act like the second mostly comedy in we'd used up any material that we had shit we gotta do something with this and then that became the thing that sort of spurred on our stand-up was always using the projector and then when i started doing stuff on my own i used some of that as well but even then funny enough i shied away from that when i started doing stuff on my own i thought well i can't do anything that me and Glyn do. And I thought, but no one knows what we do. Why am I, why am I making this more difficult for myself? But yeah, it's always been a way of sort of, yeah, I, I guess they are keeping them in separate pockets. I don't really, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have to feel inspired to write a funny song to want to do that. And, and again, it, it's a bit too contrived. I think like, I know like you're probably the same as me. This was songwriting. I needed to be inspired by something. It needed to have a reason to yeah. be. Again, to sit down going, I will write a funny song. Ukulele Girl was an accidental thing. Me and Chris, again, from my band, had like an afternoon together. I just bought a ukulele. We spent the afternoon writing that song, not intending to use it for anything. But it's quite a good, yeah, it is quite a good little song that I still do occasionally. But yeah, I didn't, I don't know. You follow the accidental things in life that make sense at that moment. When I started doing comedy, it made sense to use this projection to show the things that I sort of, was seeing in my life that I found amusing. It didn't make sense to me to do music, and that's why that became that, really. So, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just accidental, like many things in life. Yeah, and I suppose I'm thinking back to the days of, you know, coming to see your band uh, Big Day Out in Hitchin, in Bombora, yeah. was it? <laughs> Bombora, which became Bundina. Bundina. Became <laughs> the Croft, which, funny enough, mostly comedy moved there for about two or three years. <laughs> It was the worst two or three years of our sort of run because it just the room wasn't right for it. Mm. But but yes, yeah, it remained in my life for some reason. But yeah, yeah so. and I, I remember, you know, you and and Chris and Mark 
were naturally funny. I guess that kind of Beatles dynamic, your your personalities and your humour shone through, but it was that group dynamic that made it so enjoyable to watch you live. You didn't have to write funny songs. In fact, it wouldn't have worked if you'd tried to write funny songs. It was just doing things like, you know, starting the set, all playing the wrong instruments, you know, and kind of going, hang on, let's we start again. Because there, there was a window behind us, if you remember. And we did, <laughs> did one where Chris, the drummer, was on the other side of the window. Like, <laughs> no, no, you've got to come in, do the... Get, you're, oh, you're on the wrong side of the glass. So, yeah, we used to do things like that. But, yeah, the songs weren't funny. I, uh, funny enough, we had an, uh, we had them on our podcast recently, but Mark Morris, the lead singer of the Blue Tones, and when he does solo stuff, it's the same sort of thing. He plays his songs are from the heart, but he will be funny around it. And maybe it's that slightly sort of embarrassed by, um, you know what I mean, by the, by what you're saying in the song. So you sort of work off against it. And the Beatles, yeah, they're the same. They could have been comedians. They absolutely could have been comedians. You know, they were naturally witty, funny people. They just did that, yeah, naturally. Um, so. Yeah, but the funny thing was in my band, Mark was the funniest. Mark was just <laughs> a naturally funny person without trying. He could be a great stand-up because he just, I don't know, yeah, he just is a funny person. Um, and I always felt a bit more contrived in it. But then again, I, get, I think it's the imposter thing. You always look at everyone else going, oh, they're yeah. good. I'm, hmm. I'm the, you know, the fraud. And I don't know, yeah, for whatever reason, I put down a guitar and I started doing comedy. And then that's been, yeah my main focus for about I suppose 15 years really something like that um, and Chris is the, the drummer has sort of tried his hand at he's in a comedy duo as well isn't he yeah he was but that was kind of again when he had time I know his main job now is he writes uh, sort of music for um, adverts and for radio stuff and does all that sort of thing so but he still he still does do music with Mark occasionally as well. And, You've kind um, of you said been in comedy now for about fifteen years. That sort of it's interesting that 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 is a path that Chris the drummer, Chris Hollis, sorry, uh, took as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. And his his comedy band Spanax Ballet, they are they were really really good, really really good, really very funny. So yeah, they could have done that thing. He definitely could have done that thing. Chris um, is supremely confident. He always was. Uh, and also, uh, in the nicest possible way, he's quite funny looking. <laughs> and he would know that. And he would play that. So, so yeah, he's got a good sort of forthright, intelligent uh, approach to life. He used to be a newsreader as well. So it sort of follows that he's interested <laughs> in um, that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, his comedy band, they were very good. But I think just, yeah, it's a bit like me not having time for the band. Really, yeah. He didn't have time for that. He had another job and didn't really do it. But, yeah, I, I think we all felt... we. Any of the band could have been comedians, really. I was just the one that drew the short straw. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, saw, I first saw, I guess, glimpses of you and Glyn forming that that double act sort of magic that yeah. you have is because you did the the Buddy Holly show, in which yeah. it was Glyn the manager, the company manager, the tour that you did That's with. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I think um, yeah. they're still online, aren't they? The Buddy Holly tapes where you just, yes, that's right. as you say, sort of observational stuff about kind of grotty hotel rooms or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> this is the hotel room in Wakefield. Lovely little mirror there and all the washing and everything. Now, it's interesting that they should be washing on the uh, line. So we take a look at the towel that I've been supplied with. It's a lovely uh, suspicious stain there and also a, a little shadow of the lens cap. But there we go, suspicious stain there. Any ideas to what that may be? Answers on a postcard 
marking the right-hand corner, Stain. Is that really where you, you formed, do you think, that? Pretty much. I mean, did you discuss it there? We started when it was in 2005, which was the same year I started Buddy, actually. I was doing a play on the Fringe, London Fringe, and someone who also went to HCS, Sue Vincent, a comedy actress, she came to see it. And she was a member of a writer's group, comedy writer's group called The Comedy Project. And she came to see it, and it was kind of a comedy. And she said to me, um, but do, you know, do you write comedy? And I said, yes, where in reality I'd written like one like comedy monologue, really. And she said, oh, you should, you should come and join this writer's group. So she invited me along. Uh, and the first year I did it, we got Glyn in as the sort of company manager, again, the company manager for it. And this writer's group had some like big names in it as well. And there was sort of me on the sides. And then the next year, Glyn joined properly and we started writing together. So that was 2006, I think. Um, and it was around the same sort of time I got Glyn in on the buddy job because we needed a driver and a tour manager. And again, it's like trying to get your friends with you. So he came in on that. So yeah, it was. And it was that thing of, it, there's a weird thing with me and Glyn and we don't work together as much as we used to. But all those sort of buddy tapes things, there were never retakes. There were, and we do it now. If one of us switches on a camera and we see a thing, we sort of just go with it. And there's like an instinctive, like psychic thing where we did a radio show for a while. Um, and we would like have a vague outline of what we're going to talk about. There's, there was always this point where like I felt, well, okay, that's the button on that bit. And then Glyn would play the next song and we didn't have to say that. It was just there. And it's the same sort of thing. We switch it on. We become that thing. We switch it off. We don't think about it. So yeah, on that tour, the thing that kept us sane, um, was doing this little video diary. And I watched some of them again recently. Um, and they are quite funny. You know, they are because, because touring is not the sort of, uh, you know, glamorous thing you might think it will be. It's a lot of <laughs> Definitely terrible <not. laughs> hotels with unclean sheets and, you know, but again, it's something to fight against, something to find the humour in and um, those sort of things. I always prefer comedy where you almost don't have to write it. It's just there. And it was that, yeah, it definitely sort of spurred that on. Um, and that, yeah, I don't know. It's about finding your comedy voice. I think it was a way for both of us to sort of flex our muscles and go, oh, what do we find funny? So, yeah, there's a there's, and And when I started doing solo stuff, because Glenn's availability wasn't so much there anymore, it was a very weird change because suddenly I was so used to doing this thing with another person and, and sort of bouncing off that. Suddenly I didn't have that. I had to find my own voice without the second thing. And yeah, that was an interesting sort of journey to take. But yeah, it, 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 the accidental was always the thing that sort of drove our comedy in the same way the accidental drove songwriting. You pick up a guitar, you play a slightly weird chord, you go, oh, that's interesting. And then that became the song. It's the same sort of approach. I think the last time I saw uh, saw you work was Edinburgh Fringe in 2018, yeah. I think it was. So I was fortunate enough to see your show, David F. Grave, My Part and His Downfall. Um, what I liked about it, I mean, it was a unique show. So sort of bravely shining a light on mental health issues, depression, anxiety, sort of all, all things that it impacted you I guess on a personal and maybe a professional mm. level as well o over yeah. the years what I liked about the show was I guess the fact that you spoke so openly about really personal issues yeah but like in a very funny way you know I mean you weren't laughing and thinking oh I shouldn't be laughing at this yeah. you you know you you talked about it in an honest but open way that mm. and it made it funny is that what you wanted to do? Did you want to shine a light on things maybe you had, I don't know, possibly felt 
that you needed to keep hidden. Now, it's fair to say these days we live in a time where it's kind of in vogue to be in the public eye and suffer from mental health problems. I say in the public eye in the sense that you are the public, you are looking at me with your eyes. <laughs> but I like to think that I was depressed years before it was fashionable. <laughs> Everyone else was worrying about BSE and bird flu and I was there silently toiling away at my depression, stoking the boiler of negativity, essentially shining a torch for other depressed people. A shit torch with no batteries. Even as I was doing it, or as I was in the process of doing it, I wasn't sure if I was ready to do it uh, and to, to be open about it. And I sort of wrote myself into a corner, really, because it was the um, third or fourth solo show I did. And, you know, I, I'd fallen on the title and I quite liked the title. And I, and I basically I started writing a blog um, about three or four years before that because I was going through. I'd always suffered from depression. I'd, I'd um, It has really, yeah, sort of, um, I don't know, been a sort of weird negative backbone of my entire life that, yeah, probably is the reason I, I stopped doing many of the things I did. I questioned a lot of things. Um, my 20s were not a good time. My teens weren't a good time really either. Um, but when I started around the blog, it was around the same time I started to properly get help and get treatment. Um, and I was writing every day to get through my depression, really. Um, but my material didn't really didn't really go there. Um, and then, as I say, I decided on that title and the idea of what are the things, how have I been, you know, I don't know, created, made things difficult for me? When was I the one throwing the spanner in the works of my own life, of my career, you know? And some of it are little silly little things, like the sort of awkwardness things that you have, um, uh, like the time <laughs> uh, at Zebra Crossing, I held off a funeral cortege. <laughs> So like they, I was at Zebra Crossing and they stopped there and you're like, well, technically I have the right of way here, but they, this is a, this is terrible, you know, and like the awkward things <laughs> in life and you, oh, have I should I have let them go, you know, what if what if like the you know the the car with the, the coffin goes first and then I'm there and the rest of them are holding off, you know, so those sort of silly little things you go whenever those things happen, part of me goes oh, I'm fucking useless and the other part of me goes oh that's quite funny I could use that for something and then. Yeah, as I say, this title, I thought, well, I can't really, I can't really call it that and not say this thing. Um, and the weird thing was, um, I had like, I'd had shows booked in because normally in the lead up to Edinburgh, you'll do like other festivals. I had the Brighton Fringe booked, I had the Bath Fringe booked. And I was going to try this material that was quite open about, um, my depression and also about the sort of amusing aspect. Cause I, I used to go to therapy at the mental health unit uh, in, in Stevenage, which is a very bleak address. Um, and, there's a thing I do where you'd be waiting to go in and be seen and they'd have the radio on um, and songs like um, Without You, you know, I can't live without you, would play. And, you know, you think like the, the woman at the reception, she should have like a hand on a button just to stop it because you know, a lot of depressed people <laughs> and you've got that or Hotel California, that was another one I played, you know, the place you'll never leave. And you're like, and there's people, does no one else notice this? So I'd written this thing about that. So it meant in the first 10 minutes of my show, I was going to say, I suffer from depression and all these sort of things. Yeah, I started taking tablets for anxiety recently. One of the side effects said it may make me, and I quote, too happy. <laughs> That's pretty subjective. Has this been written specifically for me? Will they be like, follow me around for a week? Look to my CV and my life and go, look, David, I'll be honest with you, these are going to make you too happy. <laughs> You've got to set a reasonable level, really. You know, it's a strange thing. Uh, but um, I also suggest that somebody at some point complained 
about this. Somebody went into the doctors, threw the tablets down, went, right, I came in here, you diagnosed me with severe chronic depression, you prescribed me with these, and now I'm too happy. <laughs> Don't be confused by my tone, I'm fucking ecstatic. <laughs> I'm whistling as I walk down the street, I'm laughing, I'm laughing at Mrs. Brown's voice, I'm beginning to see the problem. And so I had these previews booked, but for one reason or another, they didn't happen. So the first gig where I was going to do a preview, I was going to do the material, was at my own comedy club uh, in Hitchin, on the same bill as Bobby Davro, of all people. Um, and suddenly, so it's like, oh, now I, I didn't want to do this material at home because I wanted to try it somewhere else. And, and if I did it in Brighton and Bath and it didn't feel right, it still felt too much, I could take it out. But suddenly the first time I was doing it was in my own club where people know me for a certain thing. And I was going to just, you know, go straight into this thing. Um but the interesting thing was, in doing that, it forced people to listen. You know, suddenly like, oh, okay, we better take this, you know, take this in. And as a result, I mean, it, it, it really, despite feeling like it maybe wasn't the right thing to do, at the performer part, we went, oh, this, this really helps. Suddenly, I, you know, people are listening. And I can talk about, as I say, because depression is in its own way funny. I mean, the, or just life is funny. The ridiculousness of the things that, you know, you fall into in everyday life. Um, so I could talk about that, but the weird thing was, as I say, you had the focus, people were listening because you can't, if someone's saying, I mean, even if they're thinking it's going to kick off, I'm going to have some sort of, you know, um, incident. You, you can't not listen to someone when they say, I go to a mental health unit every week. I do these sort of things. Um, and yeah, it sort of opened a door. I, of all the shows that I wrote, that's the one I'm proudest of. Um, it was, it was sort of the time when I put together aspects of me that i hadn't put into comedy before i did use music again i used songs that i wrote but i talked about the mental health thing um and yeah it just i don't know it it was a weird one with other shows where you spend your time really writing it i didn't really spend time writing that it just sort of fell into being um and it worked i think um so yeah but then there was this weird thing like i do interviews because i had like a pr person so i do interviews for the show um i did one for like a radio thing and then the next day or the day after, because I have, because I'm very, um, what's the word, um, sort of egocentric. I have like Google alerts with my name because <laughs> more, more because, you know, when you, when you're promoting yourself as a comedian, you have to know what's there to use it. And like the next day I, I had this thing come up saying, uh, comedian with depression, blah, 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 talks about. So a thing that I'd said in an interview, which I think is a different thing to print was suddenly, Oh, it's there. It's a thing now. I am that thing, you know. And that was an interesting thing to come to terms with. Um, but I think because, I don't know, I'm someone that generally wears my heart on my sleeve about things. And it was the one thing I'd not really talked about directly. And it really has been, you know, such a big, um, had a big impact on my life as it does. Um, I knew I was going to do it one day. I was going to talk about it. Um, but it just, yeah, it, it felt, I think, yeah, you do feel, you feel you shouldn't talk about these things. I think as a, as a man as well, there's, you know, I mean, all the statistics of men who, you know, commit suicide, you know, around the age of 40 or whatever. It's the, it's the biggest sort of chunk of people, really. Um, you're, yeah, you're kind of taught not to say these things. And then when you're a performer, you think, well, I can't say I suffer from depression and anxiety because no one's going to employ me. They're going to think, you know, I can't do it, which is not necessarily the case because, you know, you get, in a weird way, I'm much more comfortable I'm much more comfortable on stage than I am in real life, I think. Like doing yeah. stand up particularly, because there's something about the nature of it. It's a, it is a bit like being a musician. You, you suddenly get into a thing, you're holding the mic, you're there. It's like being behind a guitar. 
you 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 have a sense of authority um you know your status is higher than the room at that point and um even if it isn't there, it's a, but it's controlled you know there's like a proscenium arch and you're doing this thing in real life i can't control what's happening what's going to come up to me so yeah it's a way of focusing it and driving it that i don't have in real life so much but but in doing that and spending a month in edinburgh talking about it every day um it was a way of more coming to terms with okay you know this is okay you know it's it's like a part of the treatment really and so yeah, it became a way of normalising a few things, I think, that have been a bit of a secret. I mean, they weren't a secret. They were in all my songs. They were. I wrote in my blogs about where I was at. I just hadn't really quite joined the lines together. Um, but the show wasn't all about that. It was about other stuff as well. But it, yeah, it was definitely... An in, it was a funny thing to do. It's funny, you know, when, like your friends come to see it or your family come to see it. And I found a lot of like things with my family would actually only ever be discussed with me on stage. You know, various things that happened in my life with my mum and my dad would come out with me saying it as the material with my dad in yeah. the room. So we'd never had that conversation, but suddenly I was doing it, you know, like the fact that he had um, a hernia for 30 years. My dad had a hernia for 30 <laughs> years, didn't tell anyone and spent the whole 30 years thinking, I'm going to die. I've got this terrible disease. 30 years, like five prime ministers and like, you know, however many, there was like eight prime ministers, five Olympics or something. And he, throughout this life, he was like worrying about this thing. And, 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 you know, he went to see a doctor in the end. I mean, he had other health problems, but the hernia was absolutely fine and they, and they fixed it. So in a weird sort of cathartic way, I would talk about this with my dad there and he would laugh about it. You know, he would laugh about the ridiculousness of it and it sort of freed up a thing and the room would laugh as well. And my dad, because he was a big supporter of my comedy, he came to nearly every mostly comedy we ever did. So that's hundreds of shows. You know, he loved it. He loved it. Um, and yeah, it just, I don't know. The, and it's about reality. I think the truth, like in, like in music, truth has, is so essential in comedy. Um, and how could I write truth without writing about my depression? I couldn't. I, I would be really masking a big part of my personality. So yeah, it, yeah, it felt like the right thing to do. I still think it was the right thing to do. It made it more, it made it more real. It, it got, it's, it, oh, I suppose it's akin to like coming out or something, you know, that thing when you have this part yeah. that really, well, I say defines you. Yeah, it does, you know, but you haven't said it. And, and having spent, having spent like these years writing the blog, having spent those years in weekly therapy, it was just sort of made sense. And it was one of the most therapeutic things I've done. Yeah. And as you said, you know, it, it wasn't just you know, straight comedy then, because you, you did include your own music, songs that I even knew because I remember you playing them with the band or I remember you being at that piano in the college writing them, you know, and I've always admired you as a songwriter, you know, and listening to those so many years later and then add in that context of, you know, you speaking openly that actually I wrote these when I was at a pretty bleak place added i mean i liked that about the show they were serious at the same time they had a sort of catchy a catchy sort of hook you know and an uplifting yeah, yeah. feel to it a little bit like the juxtaposition of the comedy the funniness of the show and the sub the subject matter yeah how difficult was it for you to strike that balance or did you not think about it did it just happen <laughs> Thank you. 
spend my days just wasting time. I forgot. Down the window just to ease my mind. And in a way, I feel I don't belong. I'm smoking and I'm wondering how things went wrong. Why must I worry so much? These demons I don't need them at all. They're pushing, please push you my phone. So won't you please help me now? I think it won't you. Because you go, I've got to fill an hour here, you know. And it was, and funny enough, with each passing year writing my shows, and largely because of depression, actually, I I started writing a lot later, you know. I didn't feel ready. So with that particular show, for various reasons, um, I was really slow at putting it together. Um, and when I thought, oh, I could put the songs in, yeah, part of it was like, oh, well, that will fill some time. But at the same time, uh, like like I said, you know, I never wrote funny songs. That wasn't really what I did. And I suppose like you're saying about with the band as well, the band was funny around it and the songs were serious. It was the same sort of thing. It was a part of me. When I used to do gigs on my own with an acoustic, you know, you'd be like that, some of them. That's what I'd naturally do. You know, I wouldn't write anything, but I would just sort of joke around and then play the songs. So it sort of made sense to me to do that. And also I thought it's a good way, if you're talking about depression, uh, but you are making it funny, you are making light of it. Um, it's quite nice to have the little moments to go, oh no, he don't, you know, this is a real thing. It is. It can be quite a bleak, stark thing. And there's one particular song in it, uh, Falling Down, which was a song which I wrote in, in when we were at uh, drama school together. You know, it's got a line in it, I'm only 19, why must I worry so much? And that was the thing that kind of has, has haunted me through my life. Because when you get <laughs> when you get older, sometimes you look at it and you go, oh God, and, you know, I was 19 and I was that was the thing that was, you know, really a big part of my life. It still is, you know. Um, God, why does that not go away? Yeah, I, I don't know. It, but at the same time, you do you do change and you grow. But I just thought it was a good way of having that little touch of that. Um, and also because, yeah, I suppose because the songs were hopefully quite catchy, it, that helps as well. And it did a weird thing in that it, because in Edinburgh shows and in stand-up shows, you get a sort of lull because you can only listen to someone talk for so long before you get tired. And I and normally around the 40 minutes of a, you know an hour-long show. I think the songs help because it, freed it up a little bit and also you know i do yeah it just sort of felt really it helped it and then uh, it, oh, reviews reviews are a thing that um, haunt most comedians most performers i only got one review i think that year and they came on a day when um oh, my technician that i had at the beginning of the run you know what it's like when you do those sort of shows you have 10 minutes to get in but the other show's got to get out in that time as well and because i was using a projector because i was using a guitar uh, by very nature, everything's all wired up. 
I had very little time. And actually, it just so happened, it was the first show in the room. So I had time to set up, but not to set down. Set down, back down. And the technician arrived late. So I, I, I had knew I had a reviewer in. And the technician had arrived late. I wasn't sure if we were going to go up on time. I was stressed. Um, so as a result, I went into the show, you know, without that little moment you need to go, what am I doing now? I'm doing this, centre and do it. So it was a bit sporadic, but yeah, you had press there. And the, and the thing they said uh, was something along the lines of, you know, I don't know, but they, they said it didn't work, putting serious songs in it. You know, I don't agree. I just don't agree. And also, you know, when the show got, when the show got tight and I eventually filmed it in an evening with a full room rather than like three people at the front, like when you came, it worked by then, it, you know, and I also press in Edinburgh, they're like, they're, they say press, you know, they're just someone that's gone into, maybe, maybe never seen any com- comedy that, you know, they, they sort of judged it starkly or whatever it might be for a while, I guess, cause I read that and I went, oh, okay, that's kind of what I worried the show might be. They might say, oh, well, you know, the songs drag it down. I don't think they did. And I don't, and, and, you know, yeah, you just have to, you have to get over those things and just carry on. But, um, it, it really helped it. it helped make the depression real. It helped. You could step into that moment and then you could put the guitar down and go, right, let's go back to this thing we're talking about. It, it worked for me. It worked for the show, uh, I think. I was listening to your more than mostly comedy podcast recently, uh, the other day, in fact, the episode with Bobby Davro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you talk a little bit about reviews and reviewers. And I think what he said was great, which is, you know, basically that the only reviewer that counts is, is yourself. And as long as you're happy with what you've done and you're pleased with how it's gone, then that's the only opinion that no, should exactly. count. And the only problem is, I think, when you're, when you're a less, when you have less of a name, reviews do sort of matter because they're the thing that gives you a bit of coverage that might make people come and see you. I've had a lot of people, because through the acts that we have at Mostly Comedy, you know, whether we're having that chat on a podcast, whether having it privately, even like when we did our first Edinburgh, uh, the balloon debate I was saying about, and at the same time there was a Ken Wright show up there uh, about Spike Milligan, and Michael Barrymore was in it playing Spike Milligan, uh, which at the time I thought, really? I can't see that at all. But a friend of mine was the company manager on it, and she got me some tickets, and me and Glenn went to see it, and he was just brilliant, and he was so, so good. And then this friend uh, came to say, oh, I'll come see the balloon debate. And because this play was set in a, in a hot air balloon basket, the whole thing was in the basket. So, And we'd start in the basket as well, like hiding. And so we're hiding in the basket in this small room in Edinburgh. And my friend Anne-Marie comes in and someone else comes in. And then Michael Barrymore walks in. And, he goes, and I saw this. And then the lights went down and the show started. So I had no time to say to the other two people in the show, Michael Barrymore's in this room right now. You don't really, you know, it's such a bizarre... So the whole, it's like, there is no like, you know, universal face you can pull to say, Michael Barrymore's in the room. We need to be aware of this. We need to know. And then we met him afterwards and he was so kind and complimentary about it. Um, and he, you know, invited people to come see us and he's remained every so often. Like we did, we did um, a reading of a sitcom uh, and he played himself in it, um, which was fun as well. But um, he said to us then, and it sounds like ter- terrible name dropping. Um, but he said, you know, you don't, you don't read the reviews. They don't mean, you know, they don't mean anything. You know, they're not worth it. They're not. I, and also there's a thing, where did I hear it? Oh, it might have been even the Bobby Davro thing. You know, that's sort of talking about the only critic you should trust is yourself. I do agree with that. But also depending on your point in your career, you, you it's not so true. You go, well, I need to have a good quote. If I have a bad quote, it's not going to work. So yeah, but it is true. And the point is they come there to write an opinion about it. They they have to find, and they're writing reviews for a lot of shows. So they go, okay, guy with guitar, depression, sad songs, that'll do, you know. 
and it doesn't and like yeah it's one person's opinion and it's not an opinion i asked for <laughs> you know what i mean um and it and honestly it's so true you have to in the same way as songwriting writing comedy you have to trust the thing you know and there's a thing like me and glenn do that we just do that i trust and glenn you know he thinks he's not funny i, I, I he always doesn't feel like he's a comedian he's is that's his imposter syndrome thing going on there as well and you know i've said to him and, and often when it comes to mostly comedy sometimes i'll host it on my own if he can't be there he never wants to host it on his own without me and i say to him you know i say this is your thing you know there is no one who can do it more right than you this is your thing trust it and he makes me laugh whether it be intentionally or unintentionally more than anyone really but he thinks he's not funny you know or whatever and i think i'm you know I'm depressed. I think I'm not worth it, or whatever it might be. We all have these sort of inner monologues that that um, define so many things in our life. And at the same time, because I meditate a lot and I use that uh, very early on in my depression treatment, people would talk a lot about mindfulness. And you know, it's like I think when you're in the when you're in the throes of it, you think, "Wow, this is not going to work for me." And yeah, whatever you know, it's um, and it takes a long time to come to the point where you go, "No, I, no, I will try this." But I, yeah, I meditate a lot, and you realize how little time you spend in life in the current moment. You know, you're either in the past, you're in the future, you're not thinking about now. And in reality, now is all we really have. You can waste so much time by being caught in, you know, a moment about something that's long gone, you know. And, you know, life is an infinite. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to get on with this thing. But it's a funny thing that, as I say, Glyn doesn't think he's funny. And, and it's my job to say to him, no, you, you know. And the funny thing, again, with the podcast, I think, it's, well, one, it's easier than writing material. We don't have time to write material together anymore because he's got kids and, you know, just there isn't time. Uh, but something like the podcast, you don't have to write for, you know, something like a radio show and music that you don't have to write for. You just fire off each other. You know, I, I know he's really loving doing the podcast now, as, a, as am I. It's a shame because I've, I've always felt, this is the thing I was saying about having something a little bit sort of special that stands out. I think there's something about when I work with Glyn there's something we have together that I do think is a little bit, I don't know, it sounds really arrogant to say special, because at the same time, I also think we're shit. You know, <laughs> I, I fluctuate from both, uh, as I always did in the band, as I do with everything I do. I fluctuate between being arrogant enough to stand there and do stand up on my own and underconfident enough to think, why the hell am I here doing this? And it's a very weird line to sort of follow and to try and sort of measure out. Yeah, no, the thing about the double act, there was something there and ridiculously when we were used to run this comedy we ended up running this writers group that i told you about we got invited in which again a bit like running a comedy club it's all admin and not really what you want to do there was a time when we were hosting one of the events and just doing it off the cuff and there was a, a bbc producer there and she liked us and she came to talk to us after she said i'll come in we'll have a chat so we went to the bbc and the kid inside again this, i'm very much led by the kid inside i want to do the things that the kid inside dreamt of doing but never thought would happen. And mostly comedy is a bit of a case in point because we've invited people, like we had Paul Daniels perform there, who's a very big influence on me when I was a kid, made me want to be a performer. And I got the chance to spend that day with him, to have him do a magic trick just for me and interview him. And the kid inside, my God, there was nothing I wanted more than to meet that person. But he was in the telly and, you know, millions of people were watching it and it was just completely impossible. And likewise, you know, the comedy club, this accidental thing, it started with just people we knew. And then you started trying to get other people. And some of the first comedians we had who were just starting out were people like Josh Widdicombe, James A. Castor, these people who are now 
Nishikuma sort of very big. Um, but you learn from watching them and then you go, oh, I could invite, I see I can get that person. And every time you just try and get people that you dream of having. And it's the same with um, this thing, the kid inside going, oh, we're going to the BBC, we're having a meeting. And we haven't written anything really of any worth, but we're going to the BBC. And it was purely just off the sort of dynamic we had. Um, and on your own as a stand-up, I don't think, I mean, maybe it's me being too hard. I don't think I have the same sort of, I'm not saying that I have the same spark, but there aren't very many double acts now. Um, and we had a certain thing that sort of worked. So part of me goes, God, if we'd seen that through as we would have liked to have done, I think something more could have happened from that. But, you know, the John Lennon line, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. You know, it doesn't work out that way. Um, but having said that, you know, I've worked with Green for about 15 years. The comedy club's been running for 12 years. Um, you know, every month it happens and, you know, and it's grown to a ridiculous, you know, people like Harry Hill and Phil Jupiter's and we had Neil Innes, you know, the, the musical Python did a gig only a few months before he passed away. And, and funny enough with the ukulele girl, we did that that night because we thought, oh, we'll do some music because he's there. And we did it in the sound check and then he came up to you and went, oh, now that song's in my head now. And I was thinking, fucking hell, Neil, Neil Innes has my song in his head. That should not have happened, you know. And I'm very driven, as I say, by the kid inside and making those little things happen, that little bit of spark of magic where you go, that shouldn't have happened, you know. Um, and, you know, my bank balance doesn't reflect it in any way. But, yeah, that... And so, yeah, like that's, as I say, I think there's a little spark there. The, the sort of businessman in me goes, oh, that would have been better if we'd done that, you know. Um, but, as I say, what happens is what happens, um, yeah. Exactly, you know, and I know it may feel like, you know, oh, I'm just a comedy club promoter, I'm not really doing my own thing, it's about other people's comedy, about other people's acts, but it is still yours and Glyn's club, mm. you still, you know, before the lockdown, you were still getting up and doing stand-up routines. Oh yeah, every time. And, I mean, I used to run a club quite similar, I think I mentioned earlier, called Pick and Mix All Sorts. It was a little bit like mostly comedy, but in reverse. So ours was mainly music with a little bit of stand-up comedy thrown in. And we stopped that subsequently because of all the admin. But, you know, silver linings, you did get to have your idol, you know, like Paul Daniels there doing his magic in the corner. Uh, yeah. And those experiences did happen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's fantastic. And it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, all of All of that. You know, and that, you know, I say about the accidental, the comedy club was completely accidental. You know, um, it was an excuse to write material every month. Those first couple of years, Glenn and I were really writing a lot. And yeah, we do dip into that. And there's something about what we do. It's quite easy to get back into it without rehearsal. You don't think about it. And then I'll, I'll host some or I'll do some material on my own. But yeah, I mean, honestly, it is kind of insane what it grew from to what it became. And that's it. Yeah. It, as you say, we're still going. We still... And doing this podcast, we've been sort of reinvigorated. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's like you're always hard on yourself. You always think, well, I should have done this. And the comedy club's good because, it, you know, it does now bring in a bit of income. And actually, I learned, to be honest, how much people valued it when the COVID thing hit because suddenly we had to stop, you know, we had to, like everyone else, we stopped doing shows because we have an office that, and we have, like, to store equipment and things like public liability insurance and venue hire that we do. All those costs were still going, but nothing was coming in and we didn't know how it was going to come in, when it was going to come in. And we set up a Just Giving page to help it. And we've got about two grand, which has sort of kept it on its feet. And now we're doing the podcast, which doesn't earn 
money, but it keeps it sort of going. And we had like something like 80 messages on this thing, people saying, you know, how much they sort of, you know, value it or we want to have it back, you know, particularly at a time like this, people want to get back to that sort of, you know, there's a thing about comedy that is, it's a release. It's a release that we all need. And honestly, you know, my time in whatever room we've been in doing that has been filled with so many like, and it sounds again wanky, but literally magical moments, little moments with, you know, these dream sort of performers doing something. Someone like James Acaster, who I don't know if you're familiar with, but it, he did, you know, he did our second ever Mostly Comedy. And we didn't know any comedians. He sent a message through Facebook and he said, oh, by the way, P.S., I'm not a dick. I was like, oh, okay, well, we'll get you. I'm not a dick. But seeing those early gigs when he was doing what he was doing, where he came with the material he wanted to do, but he just ended up playing the room for an hour because it just sort of happened. My, you know, so inspiring because he's just exceptional. Uh, and like, funny enough, the the um, only time Glenn and I went to Edinburgh with a, a joint stand-up show, we were in a pub, the Meadow Bar in Edinburgh, and the show before us was James and Josh Widdicombe sort of sharing a sort of little, you know, just sort of trying stuff out. So that whole month we were spending that with them. And yeah, both very inspiring people. So there's been so many moments like that when Paul Daniels was at Mostly, when we had Rory Bremner, uh, John Thompson, all ki- all kinds of people, you know, that is a thing that can help you through depression again and keep that spark of going, yeah, no, we are doing a thing. It is still going, you know. Um, and I've met people I never dreamt I'd meet through doing it. And now through the podcast, you know, having interviews with them is, is crazy, really. You know, they're, they're, These are exceptional people. Also, there's a thing like I like to, ref- in my mind, I like to have something that I refer to to make that real. So, for example, when we had um, Ardlo Hanlon, who's Dougal from Father Ted, and again, it was one of those things when I was at school, you know, when we were at school, that was on. That was the thing people were watching. And I remember I used to spend my physics lessons talking about Father Ted to a kid, uh, Simon Offord, that was there. So when I introduced Ardlo Hanlon, I sort of said, you know, I used to have that conversation, and here, here's Ardlo Hanlon, you know, because you just have to go, I have to signpost this because this should not be happening. And it was funny as well because when... Before he'd arrived, he was one of the ones we booked through his agent. You know, we were setting up and then I have a phone call and it was him. He said, oh, where do I park? And again, it's like, I never thought I'd have a conversation on my phone with Dougal from Father Ted. It's, it's ridiculous, you know. And yeah, so even if it's only for me or I like to signpost those things to remind myself where we are, what's happened, what's happening here. And, uh, you know, you see some really inspiring people. Paul Daniels, the gig that he did, which was only a few months before he sadly passed away. And it was at the Market Theatre, so funny enough, it's where we used to do um, those very tap dance lessons that we were talking about. Paul Daniels was in that room. Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee were in that room doing their thing. That should never have happened. And also, it was just, I mean, again, magical. It's the one time everyone wanted to be at the front. Um, And he was just so, so good. You know, a man who's been doing it for like 60 years. He did his famous, the cups and balls routine with one cup and one ball. And it was just so beautiful to watch just so super sort of comfortable and this is the guy you know played the west end played vegas was the person to break morcom and wise's record for the biggest audience at christmas in the market theater studio <laughs> doing magic in the corner and there was a thing where he finished his trick and he was doing it he said oh thanks for still getting upgrade or something it's like this should not be happening um but it did and that's yeah and, and every it was just so inspiring and then obviously when he sadly passed away a few months later you go god that needed didn't happen and I'm so pleased that the kid inside got to spend that day with that person and see all these people like Bobby Davro. You know, there's this weird thing as well you find with performers that people know about. Where, And in fact, one person said about Paul Daniels when he came to the club, one person who we both know who shall remain nameless, 
for the purposes of this podcast, said, well, will we laugh with him or at him? And I was like, mm, this is a man who is, you, you, you won't be laughing at him. You know, why? Because you know this person, because you know this person without even having to stretch your mind to thinking about them, because they're like, they're a household name. And maybe they're, you know, they're from a slightly different, more sort of light entertainment background. Why do you think you're going to laugh at them? And that very person came to the show um, and, you know, ate their own words. They're like, well, he was amazing. And you just go, why don't you? I'm not booking anyone to laugh at them. I'm booking them because I want to spend, you know, 40 minutes watching a man who was just the most, had the most amazing life and experience doing what he does, do it still loving it to a room of people, all of whom, you know, they will remember that forever. I will remember that forever. Um, and yeah, I could laugh at them for God's sake. You know, no, 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 you won't. You'll be laughing with them. But yeah, it's a strange. And it's the same with Bobby Davros, I was going to say. People sort of have this preconception. But I mean, you heard the podcast. He's amazing and, he, and he's kind and he's nice and he, ca- he cares about it. Again, why? Because you know this person. Yeah, yeah, really. Lo- and really, really generous as well. Really kind, generous person. And funny enough, you know, it's probably not, terrible to say on the record but afterwards he phoned me and he was like oh, was that all right I was like it was bloody it was brilliant <laughs> you know so he used to, it, all of us all of us had that thing where you think no you know am I the fraud and he's Bobby Davro for God's sake when the mouth off podcast first started we had Yuriko Katani a Japanese female comedian oh yeah 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 she's she was great. back on podcasting episode three in May and it was great to get her perspective on the world of comedy, I suppose being a Japanese and female comedian in Britain in itself was mm, quite yeah. unique. But particularly, you know, since stand-up comedy, I guess, is pretty much still a man's world. I mean, okay, you've got some fantastic female comedians like Dana Alexander, Shapi Korsandi, yeah, Kate yeah. Robbins, who's performed it mostly before. Who's ama- amazing ama- and lovely. And, you know, of course, Eureka herself. Hmm. Sandy Toxvig, say, for example, or or even Emma Thompson, someone who's like an actor, but has that sort of, you know, I, I love Sandy Toxvig. I'm, you know, I'm in love with her. Uh, she, she's, a, you know, uh, and Joe Brand, or, you know, the, the, but, but why do you feel you have to go, oh, we've got this one and this one. It, there's, there's, I don't like the fact that that's how we feel we have to frame it, that. It should just be, you know. You know, but somehow they seem to get lost in mm. a sea of male comedians. Mm. Ugh, poor choice of phrase there. <laughs> yeah, don't I don't want to be lost in a sea of men, really. <laughs> <laughs> which also sounds like seamen, which is not really. We're not going to go there. Um. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess my question is: as the organizer of a successful comedy club, mm. how do you balance having a diverse bill with giving the punters what they want? For instance, I'm guessing an evening of just female acts might not yeah. go down as well. Yeah. Though you've probably had lineups in the past that have consisted just of men. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's very hard because also you're also just tied to people's availability. So sometimes, however much you strive to do this, you, you're tied to that. And the, the thing about mostly when it started, everyone was unknown, so you weren't coming to to see anyone you knew. But it just so happened, literally those first few people that became very big, like Josh or James, were on the bill. But there, there was like a point as it got bigger and bigger and it crossed a certain line, you had to get names to pull people in. It's really important to me. It used to be as well, we used to have about four or five acts on the bill. Now we tend to have two. And one of them's sort of the bigger one. And then us around it hosting. 
but I'm yeah very conscious of how male driven it can be and how it can take over. So I'm always at first trying to make it um, a male and female comic on the same day, or to to I tr- I tried very hard more recently to get two women over two men, say, um, because there is definitely this sort of discrepancy. And also, yeah, I think if you look at your bill over a year or two years and go, hang on a minute, they're all men, they're all white men, this is not right. But the frustrating thing is I think, yeah, like people like Eureka and lots of other people, Shabby Sandy does it as well. Everyone has to do it to a degree. And it's a thing that's sort of tied to a quite dated thing. You kind of have to point out the elephant in the room if it's you which is ridiculous. So you have to make the joke about, I used to do a thing about sort of looking like a, I can't remember exactly what it was, but like a crap in old Edmonds. I can't remember what it was. But you have to sort of signpost the thing that you look like. So you have to do that. And that's like a tie-in from like back in the 70s or the 80s. You know, if you were an overtly camp comedian, you had to point that out. Um, And it was this weird scenario where people would be laughing at that who were probably not very comfortable with that, aspects of society in real life but somehow that was okay there it's a very weird line so it's the same sort of thing yeah you shouldn't be you shouldn't have to women or black comics or whoever it might be shouldn't have to signpost it it should just be you are good you're a comedian we're interested in your voice that's very important to me but sadly yeah i I mean i think the bbc did a really bad thing when they started doing this thing of we will put one one woman on every panel show and then it becomes an excuse to just have one woman on the show, which is ridiculous because it should it should be, you know, it, in fact, I think women have the slightly higher percentage on the planet, 51%. It should be an even thing. It shouldn't be like that. So, yeah, there's a the part of me that goes, I need to make sure that we have a diverse uh, bill in terms of race, in terms of whatever it might be, in terms of sex, but it shouldn't be, uh, yeah, it shouldn't be this hard. I don't know why it is. I, and I don't know why... When there are plenty, like you know, as many examples of fantastic female comics or black comics or whatever it might be, that we still have to sort of say no, but they're really good. What you know, it's, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing. I think because my comedy club isn't that sort of brash, stagnant thing. It never has been. It's a room of people who want to listen to what you're saying. So I don't think even if the comic starts with signposting the fact that they are Japanese or they are, there's a, a woman we have who's. She's American, but she also speaks fluent Japanese and she has mild cerebral palsy. And she does stuff about that very early on. But then she moves away from it. And I think if we're only having to sign, it's so ridiculous to go, oh, look, this is a novelty. It's a woman. I mean, for fuck's sake, you know, that's <laughs> it. That is utterly ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it is, it is, it is difficult because it is a very male driven world. And I think. There's a smugness behind that, which can sometimes close doors for people. Um, and yeah, I don't think the BBC should have one woman. They should not be. They shouldn't have to signpost it, but they certainly should be having an even bill. I don't know if that answers your question in any way. Yeah, definitely. And I think it is about, as you said, signposting and owning the elephant in the room, mm. as you put it. Yeah. So. I think I remember from one of your shows, you know, that you do the section about um, pointing yeah. out that you look like, I don't know, Noel Edmonds mm. or something like that, or a poor man's Kenny oh, Edmonds yeah, or yeah, something, yeah. you know, related to when you do a Google search, typing in David F. Wave or all these random About three images, images of Noel Edmonds come up, yeah. And also I think um, 
Hitler. Like, Hitler so, yeah, it's like, what? And Phil Collins, that's all right. It's like, why are these? Like, yeah. But then you're not making a whole sort of sketch about it, are you? You just mention yeah, yeah. it at once and leaving it there, and then that's done with. Exactly. Oh, the other thing was the weird thing that <laughs> for ages the top uh, search for me was David F. Grade gay. So you put it over and something gay would come in as a suggestion. How many people are searching this for it to become a standard? You know, it's like, why, why, you know, and that's so common because I find it when I look up um, to get quotes again, like, for example, because um, we've got uh, Josh Widdicombe's coming back to in the podcast. And so just trying to find an image, you search it and instantly get Josh Widdicombe wife, Josh Widdicombe <laughs> kid. Why are people yeah. so fascinated about these things? It's so bizarre. What were you saying? <laughs> just pointing that out, really, that it, it is a shame that, that that has to be done. Well, yeah, I think I think that happens more in the sort of live at the Apollo world. When people are doing 20 minutes, they do that. Here's signposting the thing that I am. I think when you see them do their shows, hopefully, it is much less of that. Because in, in a 20-minute set, you have to sort of define your identity very quickly. It has to be very direct. It has to be very easy to understand, particularly when people's brains are sort of thrown slightly by the switch between one act to another. So I think that's why you see that a lot in those environments. I'd like to hope in most instances that isn't so much the case if you delve a bit deeper into their material. You know, it's the easy laugh at the beginning of a set and then you go, right, let's get away from that. Yeah, and it's when those sort of live at the Apollo acts become known from doing that gig. You know, I'm thinking like Sarah Millican, who I am a fan of. I think she's very funny, but she has now sort of defined herself as a overweight short woman with a filthy mouth yeah. by yeah. the way i will swear a lot and sort of tell in sort of sexual yeah. thing i think that came from sort of doing the live at the apollo stint and, and that is very yeah. much the the sort of structure she has to keep to now mm. yeah, yeah yeah which i think as i said i find her very funny it gets a bit repetitive when you know that mm. that is kind of going to be the basis yeah, of yeah. the of the material you know yeah definitely yeah, and then it plays to this sort of aspect of, oh, that's all that that person can do. Because you're sort of feeding the fire of, I do this thing, I point out this thing. So when they keep doing that thing, the, the you know, the, the unpleasant judgmental people are going, well, that's all they do. And it's frustrating because, yeah, she, she's much more than that. Many of these performers are much more than that. But you are, I think the problem is with comedy, you are you are very quickly judged the minute you go on. And you also have to show that you are aware of what that judgment will be. And you're in control of that judgment. So if you look like a certain thing, and if it's as ridiculous as it's your race or whatever, um, you have to own that very quickly. Show you're aware of it. Show you can send it up to get it over and done with, I think. So it's a bit like, yeah, it's addressing the elephant in the room so you can move on. And sadly... Yeah, it's just an easy laugh and it is what a lot of people do. But I think it just, it's a bit like, you know, I remember when we were at college and funny enough with Anne-Marie saying this, the MD, about like the first couple of bars of a show are the ones that either make you relax or make you go, oh God, I'm not going to be comfortable watching this. And it's the same for a comedian. You have to have that thing where they go, oh no, we're in a safe pair of hands. And then you stop thinking about it. And that's why I think people fall to those very obvious uh, stereotypes sadly it's bizarre isn't it i mean mouth off the podcast is a platform for marginalized groups to get their brand out there if you like to get their stories heard yeah and the thing with comedy like you just said is you often have to highlight the thing that makes you marginalized make a joke out of it a cheap joke 
and one that's going to make you feel even more marginalised, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But then I guess at least you are hanging on to the essence of yeah, who you yeah. are. But hopefully, as I say, they move on from that, particularly in their own sort of shows. Yeah, and once you've addressed that, I suppose you can delve into yeah, the yeah. actual material while maintaining a sense yeah. of self. It's just about entertainment. It should just be entertaining. So... Yeah, and I suppose if something doesn't work, it's not strictly a comedy club, is it? It's mostly comedy with a bit of other things thrown in. And also, yeah, it's a sort of handy get-out. If something doesn't work, people are trying new material. You go, well, that's the sort of um, disclaimer. It's mostly comedy, really. Not all. Ah, Hitchin Football Club, eh? Home of uh, Hitchin Football Club. This next song's called Hang On, which is good advice if you're riding a bike. See? 
McCartney. I mean, he's such a big influence on Still. Always has been. Yeah, he's the reason I picked up the guitar in the first place. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.